Amen. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, Lord willing, through the end here. But let's jump right into it. Let's take this first section of verses 27 through 31. It says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. <laughs> Welcome to church. <laughs> Heavy word, right? These are, I, I just love this kind of thing. When we get here and go, what is in here? This is a heavy word that we might want to gloss over. And it's funny, we had a conversation pre-service. It was like, isn't it funny how we always pick on Peter? Peter in this section, we're like, oh, Peter, we all know. I'm guessing if you've ever come to church, you're familiar with the gospel. If you're walking, just you know the outcome of this story. The first thing I'm going to ask you to do, like I always say to do, coming with fresh eyes this morning. <laughs> Pretend that this is new to you this morning because there is a new work that the Lord wants to do here. But also, the reality is, don't just see this as Peter. <laughs> you see, this is written here, like as Paul says, that we have examples before us that we may learn the things not to do. <laughs> that we could learn from other people's mistakes and say, man, may I not step into that? But let me give you some context of where we're at in verse 27, it just says here that Jesus said to them, we're like, who's here? Remember, this is Jesus with his disciples. They're headed out to the Mount of Olives. What we saw last week is they had partaken in the Passover meal. The Lord Jesus, he instituted the Lord's Supper. In Mark 14, 22 and 24, he said, this unleavened bread, it now represented his body. That cup, the, the, the cup of thanksgiving from Passover, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And see, Jesus was preparing them that that very day, that very evening, he would be going to the cross to fulfill the plan of God, to become the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, as John 1.29 says. And see, he'd been teaching them about his death. He'd been teaching them these things. But what he tells them here in verse 27 is they're headed out. He gives them this startling word. I mean, imagine just a blessed time in the upper room. If you read John 13 through 17, Jesus is loving on them. He's praying for them. He's teaching the word to them. But now what he tells them, he says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me today, this night. And see, that word for stumble in the Greek, it's this word skandalizo, right? Like scandalous. <laughs> the idea is that you are going to be so offended by who I am that you're going to want to disassociate, that you're going to want to disapprove the things that I am doing. How did Jesus know this was going to happen? It's interesting. He says, because it is written, he says in verse 27. And he quotes Zechariah 13, 7. How many of you guys were at the men's study this past Thursday? Remember we studied Zechariah 13? I told you I couldn't plan this if I tried, how good this is, right? This is awesome. Don't think I'm that good. The Lord is that good. <laughs> we are reading Zechariah written four, no, 500 years before Jesus was born on Thursday night. And it says that there was coming this good shepherd who would be struck by God. He would be, he would be basically, again, struck by him and the sheep would scatter. 
And I thought, man, this is literally what Jesus is talking about when we're here on Sunday morning this week. And what this was saying was the reality that Zechariah prophesied it through the Word of God that, man, when the Good Shepherd, which Jesus called himself in John 10, verse 11, he said, I'm the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, when that occurs, the sheep are going to be scattered. And see, Jesus took it and said, this means you guys. Now, we know there's, there's various applications and fulfillments, but Jesus used it to say, my disciples are going to run when I am struck. And see, Jesus understood that he was going to fulfill Isaiah 53, that the, he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace would be upon him. And that process, it actually pleased the Lord to strike him because there was a joy that was coming out of it that is salvation to everyone who believes in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so in verse 28 here, he says... Attached to this like dark, heavy word, he says, but don't worry, right? He says, after I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. Shouldn't that make us rejoice if we hear like, hey, you're going to stumble. You're going to want to disassociate with me. But I promise you two things. I am going to return. You know what that means? I'm going to conquer the grave. You should rejoice in that. And secondly, I'm going to reunite with you despite your coming denials of me. But see, our hearts, we hear the words of Jesus that are offensive, and we miss the blessed promises because we're offended. Peter didn't say, oh man, Jesus, I'm so grateful that you're going to reunite with us when you resurrect. He said, how dare you say this about me? I'm strong, Jesus. I'm offended by your word. <laughs> I will tell you, that as a pastor, as we teach the Bible verse by verse, we're going to offend people. Yes. I love it. It's been said that we all need to be offended sometimes. <laughs> we need to acknowledge that we are sinners, that we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ. And see here, they miss the blessed promise because they're saying, no, 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 let's just argue about the fact that I'm going to fall short. Don't get me wrong. None of us like that word, right? I don't want to be told how, how, how soft I am, how, how, how sad and pathetic I can be. But the Lord says, you don't understand, this is never about you being strong enough. This is about me conquering the grave and bringing you and restoring you to me. If we get our eyes off the fact that Jesus has done the work, that we should be trusting in Him, man, we're going to get in all kinds of trouble. We're going to start to get puffed up thinking we're earning our salvation. Legalism starts to set in. We start thinking that we're strong. And see, in verse 29, what Peter said, he said, even if everyone else stumbles, yet I, I will not stumble. <laughs> That's scary terms, huh? We laugh because we've all been there before, right? See, I love it. Pastor Joe, you guys remember Pastor Joe, my pastor from Calvary Pomona Valley. He was out here about a month ago with us. There's a phrase that he used to just, just throw around. It's funny. Joe's just a poetic dude. He just says things. I'm like, you should be a rapper or something. Dude, this is just poetic what you're saying. And he just said, the words always and never, those belong to God alone. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, carnal man shouldn't be saying things like, I will always be good or I will never fall. Those, those words shouldn't belong to us, right? We say never say never, right? The idea is that when the Lord says things like, my word will stand always and forever, we can trust that. If I tell you I am going to stand always and forever, you should laugh at me and rebuke me. And we should do the same to one another as we start getting puffed up on such things. And see, Peter really believed. He says, even if everyone else does, I won't. 
I'm exalting myself to be better than everyone else. <laughs> it's crazy because 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. How many times, as Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spear before a fall. How many times have I said things like, man, look at that guy's life over there. Look at that person's life. I'll never do those kinds of things. I'll never be like that ministry. Man, that is just opening a door to get puffed up. To think that, man, I, I'm just above everyone. I'm exalted. Philippians 2, 3 says, let everyone esteem others better than themselves. That's pretty interesting. I should be esteeming, man, if that person can fall and mess up, and I should be esteeming them even better than me, more important than me. And I think I'm better than them? You see, Peter is battling some pride here. But Jesus tells him, you're all going to stumble. I love it, though. Again, Jesus is faithful. Amen? Amen. We're going to see how this plays out. Look at 32 through 36. It says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. A heavy section. Just a, an intimate moment of seeing Jesus' prayer in the garden. This place, Gethsemane, and it literally translates as an oil press, a place where they would crush the olives to get the benefit of it, to get the oil out of it. It is so fitting that this is the place where Jesus, prior to being crushed upon the cross, we will say, is going and praying in this place. It was at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It was an olive tree orchard. And he was accustomed to pray there, according to Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. And see, Jesus told his disciples, hey, stay here while I pray. And I believe as we get all the context, he knew he wanted them to keep watch while he prayed. Because we're told in John 18 too, Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus recognizes, man, the time is close. The time is near. You guys stay here. You guys hang out. You need to pray. You need to watch. You need to be ready for this final trial is at hand. And see, Jesus knows that he is about to die. And man, what does he do with his last night? He goes and seeks a quiet place to pray, to seek his Father's will and the comfort of God the Father. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I've read surveys like this. People will say things like, if you had one week to live, what are some things you do? It's like, I'd go skydiving, right? Because what's the worst that could happen? I don't know. I guess that's the logic. <laughs> uh, there's this idea that, oh, I would, I would go and I'd do this. I'd give everything away. I'd go and talk with people. Or I would go and try to fulfill my bucket list, right? Jesus says, I am going to go pray that I may align with the will, understanding that the plan is that he be slayed as the Lamb of God. I'm not going to run from this. I'm going to go pray and seek the Father that I may submit to it. But also, he prays for, like, I believe, comfort and strength. We see that the Lord is good to give it. God the Father sends him an angel to minister to him in Luke twenty two forty three. As we run to the Father and say, Lord, I don't know if I can do this, but I want to fulfill your will. Man... God is so good to comfort us. With us, it's the Holy Spirit, amen, the comforter. 
Amen. If you're having a tough time right now, whether it be in struggling in sin, struggling for direction, struggling just for the energy to continue to do the things the Lord has called you to do, now I'll tell you, are you praying? <laughs> Don't hear that as a condemnation that you're not already, but are you praying as if, man, your life depends on it? <laughs> I remember before Jen and I, before we moved out here, my wife Jen, who's actually in here in the study, praise the Lord, she's sometimes, so yeah, shout out to my wife, because we can't do it without my wife, okay, yeah. So, the reality is she's so embarrassed, she won't even look at me right now. So I see the top of her head taking notes. She's probably writing down things to yell at me about later. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the reality is, when we were praying about coming out here, I should say we were talking about coming out here, we had made a decision, we're going, we believe this is the Lord. And I remember the last few months leading up to our move, I remember just telling her, man, I'm just not praying enough for a guy that's about to change his whole life right now. I'm praying like always. And that's fine, don't get me wrong, but there's a reality like, man, these are big things I'm about to step into. Have I really just committed to this without really being soaked in prayer? And now that I've committed to it, hey, Lord, am I going to do the things you want me to do? Again, no doubt that we needed to go. But it's like, man, I know I'm going to have to submit to the Lord. Hey, honesty to this, I don't think I prayed as much as I should have. Let that be an encouragement. I'm not the hero in that story. It's the Lord convicting me that I should pray more. <laughs> and see, the Lord is so good that even as I fell short in my commitment to seeking Him, man, He was always speaking, though. And as I slowed down and sought Him, it was like, man, you already told me that back here. I was just moving too quick. I was just not aware of what you were trying to speak to my heart. And I encourage you guys this morning... If you're praying, keep praying. But man, commit some time to the things the Lord's called you to. Amen? Amen. Does that make sense? Right. Awesome. And so as we see here, what he does is he takes Peter, James, and John. The three guys that we see, he always takes these guys, and I know we always joke about this, these are the three that Jesus needs to keep a close eye on, right? He's like, these guys always try to, you know, call down fire and do crazy things. I think it's really this. First of all, the Lord knows that they're going to be leaders in the church. They're going to be there. They're going to need to be as close to his example as possible. But also, we know that in Jewish law, you needed two or three witnesses to testify of things. I think for Jesus, he says, I'm taking these guys in, and whenever I raise someone to life, Whenever I am at the transfiguration, the three are there. <laughs> and see, this is interesting. At this point, Jesus is letting them in not to see him raise someone to life or to be glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's there so they can see him deal with the torments, the suffering, the realities of what it is. It's not always glorious, <laughs> right? I should say this. It's not always glamorous. <laughs> it is always glorious if you're doing what the Lord's called you to do. Amen. It may be small, it may look different than what we expected, but man, when we walk in these things, when we seek the Lord, man, it can sometimes be hard, but what he does here, it says that they saw him begin to be troubled, which is this word ekthembeo, it means struck with terror, and he was deeply distressed. This word is ademoneo. I don't speak Greek, I try to read the guys who know Greek, okay? But, so if I'm saying that wrong, forgive me. What it means is Jesus was loathing the idea that, man, the suffering that is going to come. That don't think that Jesus went to the cross with this smile of like, you see this in like picture books sometimes, picture Bibles. Jesus is smiling, hanging out. This is a heavy, uh, forget the physical stuff. Physical is bad enough, but Jesus is saying, I am about to go endure the wrath for all the sins of mankind. I'm about to experience suffering a cup of suffering like no one has ever experienced. And he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Think about who this is that's saying this. 
Jesus Christ says, I am terrified of what lies ahead. Should that not ground us and sober us in like how serious the situation is? And in this moment, his disciples are seeing this. Peter, James, and John can see this. And it's just the agony that's here, the loathing, the, the, the fact that he's so distressed. And you see Psalms 22.1. It prophesied the grief of the suffering Messiah a thousand years before Jesus was born. It said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? And so in 35, he says, I'm going to go a little farther. And he tells these guys, he says, keep watch. And he fell on the ground. Now, some people say, oh, he's just praying, right? You just, you're on the ground. There's something here that's so dramatic about this. We've seen Jesus pray before, and it was never this heavy of an experience. It's the fact that he knows that this is his last chance. This is his last prayer session before he's about to be betrayed. There's a heaviness here. And he prays, if it's possible, that the hour might pass from him. This is radical because, again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. See, God took the sinless one, Jesus Christ, who had never sinned, lived perfectly, and he says, I'm going to actually have you receive all of that wrath, the suffering, the punishment for everyone who has sinned. And that those that believe upon it, let me be clear, not a message of universalism. You have to believe upon the work of Jesus Christ that he is the atoning sacrifice to make propitiation for our sins. Amen? Amen. When you believe in that, by faith, you receive the righteousness of God. And it says here, you become Hinomai in the Greek, you become the very righteousness of God. I don't know about you guys, I don't feel like the righteousness of God many times. <laughs> but do you know the Lord sees eternity and sees, man, I see you glorified. I am sanctifying you now. You have been justified in Jesus. You are being sanctified by the Spirit and you will be glorified with the Lord someday. We are blessed to be in this all because of the work of Jesus. And see, in this section in Luke, in Luke twenty-two forty-four says that Jesus was in such agony that he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Again, it says like. People argue over that. Well, are those just big drops of sweat? I don't know, but I've never prayed so intensely. I've experienced anything like that, man. That's hardcore. <laughs> and this is Jesus saying, I am going to pray like this. I am going to seek the Lord's will. I am begging that if it is possible that this hour may go from me. But it's interesting, in verse 36, he prayed to his Abba Father. And see, you may have heard, this is interesting, some people are like, that means daddy, right? You're like, they didn't really have a word for daddy in their language, okay? So we have to be careful with how we use that. That's something that we kind of see as like a little kid thing. Like at some point, my dad's running sound today. If I call my dad daddy, you guys would be kind of weirded out, right? <laughs> daddy, turn up the volume, right? You'd be like, what is happening here? <laughs> but there should be a closeness as I talk to my dad that you guys are like, oh yeah, like that's cool. Like he's, they're tight, they're close, right? Now God, the Father, we, we like to say things like, hey, we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord because we've all come from Adam and Eve. And there's an element of truth to that, that God created everyone, that he's the father of everything. But is he a close dad? Is there a relationship with every person? There is not until people come into Jesus Christ. Do you know that when Jesus prayed to Abba here, no one ever did this in Jewish culture. 
This was not something that you did. You didn't pray to God as if he was your close dad. Jesus does this, and after this, the rest of the New Testament, we see people like Paul writing about that. You can pray to your Abba Father. When we come into Jesus, by our faith, according to John 1, 12, we are made children of God. Amen? This is an incredible thing because, again, without the blood of Jesus, without the work of Jesus, there's no business for me to be in that relationship with God, to call him Abba. And see, Jesus is praying, Abba, I know all things are possible. That means in your omnipotence, in your omniscience, in all of your power, you can do anything. So since you can do everything, please make a way for me to not have to go to the cross. And see, he says, though, but not my will be done, but yours. <laughs> see, there is a movement that believes this word of faith, like, you know, you, you, you name it and claim it, right? Blab it and grab it, right? Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> the idea, <laughs> that's an old one. I heard that once. Heard that on like an 80s recording of Xavier Reese. I like that. So the reality is when you're told sometimes, you just have to pray. Don't say if it's his will. Just pray that he's powerful enough and he'll have to do it, right? I'm going to pray like Jesus, <laughs> Don't go changing your theology just because someone tells you, oh yeah, God's powerful. He can do whatever you want. Jesus, the perfect one, says, I know you can do everything, but I'm going to trust that whatever you do is perfect and right. See, that changes our heart and aligns it with his rather than God being our genie being told to do whatever I tell him to do. And see, Jesus here, he prays this thing. And the reality is, let's note, let's note this. Did Jesus go to the cross? Yes. Does that mean... There was some other way? No. God says, there's only one way. I am able to do anything and everything, but there is no other way to deal with the sins of mankind. The only way, the only truth, the only life, as Jesus said in John 14, 6, is Jesus Christ himself. If there was another way, you have to believe that God the Father would do it. He could have, but there was no other way. <laughs> And see, when we realize that, it reminds us of Acts 4.12. It said, there is salvation in no other name. I don't know what you're trusting in this morning, who you're trusting in. It's got to be Jesus or nothing else. Amen. Nothing else can bring you into the presence of the Father. Look at 37 through 42. It says, then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. I know you can hear it, right? The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so here's Jesus, takes his boys with him. There's three choice guys, right? Peter, James, and John. He left the other guys at the front. Hey, keep guard over here. Be praying, keep guard. These guys, hey, come with me a little further and keep guard and pray. Well, he now goes in. He starts praying, intensely praying. And it says it was about an hour. Jesus just praying just hard, right? And he comes out. And what's the guy that said he would never fall short doing? He's snoozing, man. He's snoring. He's sleeping away. And Jesus is like, are you serious right now? That's how I paraphrase it, right? That's my New James translation. And so he's like, you can't be, you can't be serious. 
And I love it. Did you notice what he called him? Every commentator pointed this out. He didn't call him Peter in this moment because Peter means rock, strong. He calls him Simon. <laughs> Dude, you're like sifting sand right now. <laughs> You're soft, right? S-A-W-F-T, soft, dude. You are weak, man. <laughs> you are so pathetic. No, that's how I feel. I know that's not really probably what Jesus said, but you got to think if that's me in that situation, I'm probably calling these guys out. Especially, notice this, all three of them were sleeping, but who did he call out? Peter, Simon. Why? Because Peter and Simon was super puffed up before the situation. All of them said they, would, they wouldn't, betray, wouldn't deny Jesus. But man, Peter's like, I am so strong, Jesus. Oh man, Jesus is like, dude, <laughs> you need to get it together. What he tells them here, he says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. You see, this is a warning, not just to Peter, but for all of us. We start to get really lax, really casual. And it's funny, Jesus hasn't taken down any intensity in his ministry to, to, to intercede on behalf of our, of our needs, right? According to Hebrews. He lives always to make intercession for us. You know, I'm over here just cruising sometimes. Oh, my eyes are heavy. I better just take a little nap, right? That's what happens here. And it's, it's crazy because he tells them, man, watch and pray. That's like be vigilant. Be prayed up. You're in a real spiritual battle, there is an enemy, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, who's on the prowl looking to devour those that belong to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're just going to lay around and sleep, man, you're going to be overtaken. He does give him this encouragement. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> oh, man, we can all testify to that, right? <laughs> My spirit cannot wait to be glorified in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> I cannot wait to take off this nasty tent and walk into the goodness that is the righteousness that has been made mine through Jesus Christ. I yearn for it. Creation groans for the new heaven and new earth. I can relate to that. Man, Lord, give me what I need. I need I'm waiting for it. But see, here in this instance, man, this is just an example of your flesh. Your flesh says, man, why don't we just take a rest instead of praying? Why don't we just go to sleep instead of standing guard with Jesus, standing for Jesus? And Jesus says, man, this is, this is wild. Your flesh has overtaken you. Let me remind you of Galatians 5.16. It says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How do we tap back into the Spirit? Man, we got to be in prayer. we got to be in the Word. Man, I'm telling you that if your life right now feels super carnal, if you feel like you're stumbling every moment, take a look at your prayer life and your devotional time with the Lord. How are you doing? <laughs> you see, someone told me a long time ago, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> what dog am I feeding, feeding in the fight, right? Am I feeding my flesh or am I feeding the Spirit of God that dwells in me? And man, if we feed that Spirit, man, the Spirit's willing but that flesh is weak, but we can made, be made strong through the power of the Spirit and through the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, in verse 39, again, he goes and prays. This happens a couple more times. He comes back and forth, back and forth. And finally, when he shows up in, in 40, right, it says they didn't know what to answer him. They're just ashamed at this point. They're like, ah, he caught us again. <laughs> Remember when Jesus called them out for what they were discussing on the road when they were talking about who's the greatest? And it says no one wanted to answer. They were all silent. They were ashamed. Jesus says, you guys can't be serious right now. I've just taught you about humility and you want to know who's the greatest. You just said that you'll stand forever and strong for me and you're sleeping in my final trial at the beginning of this whole thing. I've warned you, this is going to happen. And so he says, are you guys still sleeping and resting in 41? He says, man, all right, it's enough. 
I love that term. Jesus is like, you, it's here. You slept so long that you didn't realize it's upon you. The betrayer is at hand. And he says, man, rise because this is going to occur now. See, Jesus knew that the word of God was going to come to fruition. It, the prophesied word, his plan would be fulfilled. And it had suddenly come upon them as they slumbered. Now, I can't help but connect this. We just studied Mark 13 for the last two weeks. We talked about the end of the age. We talked about the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus Christ. Do you know what we're told in Romans 13, 14? It says, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. See, Romans tells us you better walk around awake. Wake up and understand that time is short. Live as a living sacrifice and look with your eyes upon Jesus. He's going to return. He's going to come again. He's going to take his church home. <laughs> that should make us excited. Amen? Amen? The world wants to lull us to sleep. Wants to amuse us. It wants us to turn off our brain. It wants us to do nothing. But what the Lord says, man, be vigilant. Be prayerful. You don't know when this hour can come. And guess what? It came upon you when you weren't expecting it. Be ready for the Lord. Amen? <laughs> Look at the detainment that begins here in verse 43. We're going to do a good run here, 43 through 52. It says, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come... Immediately he went up to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid their hands on Jesus and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But... The scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. Okay, weird section here. And the young men laid hold of him, and left, he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. That's just a funny detail to me, I think. But we have this detainment that's happening here. It says, as he was speaking immediately, I love the words of Jesus. He tells these guys, right now, you've slumbered and the hour is upon you. And as he's finishing that sentence, you could hear the gates of the garden open and here comes Judas with all the guys. The word of God stands forever. <laughs> you can trust the words of Jesus, whether they are things that say you are a sinner who will fall short, but trust that I'm going to rise again. Amen. There is a rejoicing in the fact that Jesus' word will come to fruition. And it says here that these men show up and they're armed. This multitude has swords and clubs. And see, we're told in John 18, 2, they're described as a detachment of troops. This serves to remind us that the, both the Romans and the Jewish people work together in the detaining of Jesus. There is no room for anti-Semitism to say that the Jews killed Jesus. Can I tell you who killed Jesus? We killed Jesus. Our sin put Jesus upon the cross. <laughs> no room for anti-Semitism. No pointing fingers at the Romans, the Jews, or anyone else. Jesus came and died for sins. And if it were only you and I who had sinned, he still would have done it. <laughs> he came to die for those who will put their trust in him. <laughs> and see, it's interesting here. Judas says, hey, I'm going to establish a signal. 
I'm going to walk up and kiss the one. We're like, what? Okay, this is a greeting in their time, okay? There's nothing weird here. This is simply as, as if I would come up and give someone a greeting of a hug like a brother and a friend. It's, I had to stress that because you'd be surprised what churches do with things like this, okay? David and, David and Jonathan, Jesus and Judas, Jesus and John. Do you know that there's, there's doctrines out here right now in churches being taught, probably this morning, that say, oh, Jesus maybe had been a homosexual. I hate even saying that. Do you know that a church is saying this? That should startle us. There are full denominations moving into those movements. <laughs> Insane. First of all, it's a disregard of the original context. Secondly, it's imposing what we want to be approved to be approved in Scripture. Again, people don't like being offended. Man, obey the Word of God. Amen. <laughs> I hate even having to say that sentence out loud, but it's the reality we have to be on guard against these things. In verse 45, he goes up to him and says, Rabbi, Rabbi. That means teacher, master, like my, my guy, right? Goes up to him, repeats it twice. And when they did things like that in their language, it stressed like sincerity. Holy, holy, holy. That is as holy as you get. Rabbi, rabbi? Oh, you're my buddy. You're my master. And he gives him that kiss of honor. And it's so, it's just tragic because in Luke twenty two forty eight, 48, Jesus says, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Oh, it's just so sad. And see, Jesus, <laughs> he knows things. Proverbs 22, 6, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Absolute deceit here in this detainment. And see, we're told that when they come to lay hold of him, in John 18, 5 through 6, do you know that they asked, are you Jesus? And he says, I am he. And do you know that they fall over because of the glory of his spoken word? I don't know. I feel like that might stop me if I have a sword in my hand. I'm like, I'm going to arrest this guy. And he just said, I am he, and I just got knocked over, right? Like matrix status. That would be kind of crazy. They're like, you know what? I'm out on this arrest. I'm going to go wait outside maybe. <laughs> but it's interesting. Jesus' disciples, one of them even sees that and still thinks, I got to fight for Jesus. Jesus can't defend himself. And this is why he's going to get arrested because he's just some little victim here. I better get my sword out and defend Jesus. <laughs> I tell you, we do things like this all the time. It, spots where Jesus is like, what are you even doing here, man? Why are you fighting this fight right now? This guy pulls a sword out. Can we guess who it is that has the sword? Our boy Peter. Our boy Peter. I love Peter. I know someday I'm going to have to stand and talk with Peter and be like, dude, we, we, we love you. I don't mean to make fun of you. We actually love you a lot, dude, okay? But he pulls the sword out. And he starts swinging so wildly that he chops the ear off of the high priest servant. The high priest servant is not an armed man, first of all. <laughs> He's not a threat to the situation. There's people with swords and clubs. Like, at least pick a guy with a sword, Peter, right? You're hitting a guy. He's not even in the fight, really, dude. And this guy's name is Malchus. We're told that in other places in the Gospels. I think it was included because we're told in Luke 22:51 that Jesus, I see the scene. It doesn't say he picked up the ear, but I kind of see it like this. Jesus is like, hey, dude, permit this. And he picks up the ear. He heals the guy's ear. That should stop you from arresting Jesus. If you didn't, if the glory didn't get you... <laughs> Dude, he just healed my ear. <laughs> this guy's different. We're arresting him because we think he's saying he's God, and he just healed my ear that got cut off. I think Melchus is named by name because I believe that night he put his trust in the Lord. Because when you include names in Scripture, when you're Luke or Matthew or Mark, you're writing names in there because it's like, hey, you guys know this guy. Rufus is mentioned, I think it's in Luke, and it says, you know, this is, this is a guy that we know. He's putting names in there. I think Malchus, I got to hope at least that he put his trust in the Lord after that point. We don't know for sure. That's my conjecture. But in 48 and 49, Jesus just says, have you guys seriously come out as if I'm a criminal? 
You come and arrest me today in a garden at night with an armed detachment of troops. Because you understand that I stood in your temple for three and a half years. And what did I tell you? I told you, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. I healed your sick, your lame. And you're here with swords and clubs. This is embarrassing that you have missed this. And remember who this is. The people that studied the word of God in and out. The scribes, the high priests, all of these men. And Jesus says, man, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Let's be clear. Jesus, if his word could knock over people, man, he could have gotten out of this. He could have called a troop of angels to destroy these people. And he says, no, we're going to permit this because this is what the Father's will is for me. The best example that we can possibly have is Jesus. Amen. Amen. We said it last week. I'm going to say it again. He suffered first. He suffered worse. <laughs> you sometimes start to go, man, Jesus, you just don't know. He knows. And because of that, he's able to comfort us. He's a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses, as Hebrews 4 tells us. Amen. And so it's interesting here. In 50, it says they all forsook him. What did Jesus say in verse 27? That they all denied it. Oh, no, that'll never happen. They literally all forsook him. They all ran off. It's interesting because we're even told here in verse 51 and 52, this is unique to Mark, the gospel of Mark. It says there was a young man who came in this linen cloth. And it's interesting. We believe that the young man is Mark himself. We believe that he included this detail because he's like, man, I'm kind of calling out all these guys taking Peter's testimony. I'm talking about how they all fled. But man, I too fled the scene. I too ran away. And see, they say, why would this guy be in just like this linen cloth? Chances are, we believe that maybe, some people say the upper room may have belonged to his mother's house. They, they used to gather at, at, at John Mark's house. But the reality is he probably got word of like, man, something's going down. I'm going to run over to see what this is. And he just has time to throw a blanket over himself. And this guy is so concerned about preserving his life over staying like loyal to Jesus that he runs away naked. <laughs> That's like embarrassing, right? Yes, it's embarrassing. Do you know, okay, here, this is funny. I told my wife this the other day. I said, no one ever quotes Satan in a Bible study, so forgive me, okay? Do you know in Job 2.4, Satan says that man will give up everything to preserve his life. I don't like quoting Satan, but I'll tell you, Satan's on the money on that one. Man will do anything to preserve himself, even if it means being disloyal, unloyal to Jesus. And see, it's interesting, because what did Jesus say? If you lose your life for my sake... You will find it. Yes. Satan says, no, man, don't lose your life for Jesus. Do anything you can to keep your life. Mark's like, I'm willing to run out of here naked to save my life. <laughs> That's embarrassing. This is what we do. We may not run out without linen cloth, but spiritually speaking, practically speaking, we do so many things. We're like anything, but standing with Jesus, it might risk my life, risk my comfort. And see, Mark's like, man, I'm out of here. And I love that he included it. That's humility that he put this in there. He didn't have to. None of the other gospel accounts have it in there. He could have got away with it. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit stirs him to put that and include it. And so look at the deceit now. Look at 53 through 59. It says, And they led Jesus away to the high priests, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, 
We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So in this moment, Jesus is being tried by the religious leaders at night. 53 says it's the high priest, that's Caiaphas at this time. He has all the other religious leaders that serve as the Sanhedrin. That's like the religious supreme court of their time. They're all getting together to accuse Jesus and hopefully charge him with death, though they know they have nothing to charge him with. And so they get together in John 18, 12 through 14, tells us that Jesus was first actually brought to the former high priest, Annas. He was brought there, then he was brought here to Caiaphas, and then in the morning he had another trial before the Sanhedrin. He actually is going to go through six trials in this day between the, the, the civic trials with Rome and these religious trials with the Jews. Jesus' day, it's no wonder Jesus had to pray before all of this. Not only being arrested, but six trials, and trials at night. These are not legal in their culture. Some people say, well, maybe it was because you know, they were in a hurry because of Passover, this and that. This isn't something that you did. You, you had to have this in the daylight that people would know what was happening. See, there were people in town that believed, they were there for Passover and believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that if we do this in front of a crowd, we might die. They might riot. They might become insurrectionists or something. We can't have that. So they're doing this under the cover of night. But we're told Peter followed at a distance, but right into the courtyard. So we're seeing, okay, right into the courtyard. That's pretty gutsy, right? Like, all right, Peter, you're a strong guy, but at a distance. Do you see how it's already starting? Oh, I'll go with you, Jesus, but I'm just going to follow a little bit over here to see how this turns out. <laughs> Let me just see how this works out for you. We're actually told in Matthew 26, 58, he just wanted to see the end. Like, in other words, what would happen to the Lord? And in 58, the purpose of this trial says that they would put him to death but they couldn't find anything valid to charge him with. So as 56 says, many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. <laughs> you see, when you get a bunch of people making things up, they're going to eventually contradict each other in a way that shows them as being false. This is kind of cool. I remember David Guzik has said this many times. I don't know if he says it in this section, but he's said this before. How is it that you can get four Gospels together, four different people, and their contradictions serve to complement the reality? And it stands as truth. A bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, right? But you get these professional, strong dudes. They're like, we're going to make up something. And it just can't come together. <laughs> they're trying so hard to show Jesus as being someone who is a criminal. But see, Deuteronomy 19.15, it said that you couldn't, again, you couldn't have just one voice. You had to have two or three witnesses. See, if you could only have one voice, one guy could make up anything he wanted, and you'd have to take it. It's funny, kind of reminds me of cancel culture right now, right? You get one, one shot. If you do anything wrong and someone says you did it, oh, you're, you're guilty. You're guilty, you're done. Charge them with death. Funny. It's the same idea here, but God put something in his law and says, no, 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 you test these things. Now, if someone is guilty of doing something, two and three witnesses agree, then okay, we have a problem. Let me be clear. Sometimes people need to deal with consequences, amen? They need to be judged rightly. But Jesus is here, and they can't find anything to bring against him. Some guys even come together. It says two, at least two in Matthew 26, 60, regarding these people that come and say, hey, we heard him say he's going to destroy the temple. Remember, the temple was like, man, you didn't talk about the temple. That's like blaspheming against God in their culture. They said, he said he's going to destroy this temple and then resurrect it in three days. Now, let's be clear. If you go back to John 2, 19, Jesus says something kind of like that. <laughs> He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it goes on to say in John 2.21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
These religious leaders were so misconstruing everything that Jesus said, they had painted the scripture in a way to where they expected a reigning Messiah. And when Jesus comes and says, this temple, you're going to destroy it, but I'm going to raise it up again in three days. They're like, he must be talking about the temple out here. And he's a blasphemer. This is after he had cleansed the temple and they asked him for a sign. He said, this will be the sign that I have the authority to do this. I'm going to rise again. And see, they missed it. And instead of taking that and responding to it with repentance, they tried to paint Jesus as a criminal and reject him. Look at 60 through 65. It says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed, that's the Son of God? Jesus says in 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, speaking of himself, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. <laughs> then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to, to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Absolute, brutal, just wicked punishment here. And what happened in verse 60, we see Caiaphas, the high priest, he rises up and he says, do you not have anything to say? They're already having this trial at night. That's wrong. The high priest was never to stand up. This is the judge. Imagine the judge becomes the questioner that's trying to accuse the person on trial. He says, oh, you know what? You're not going to answer any of these things? What's wrong with you? Say something. And see, what he's trying to do, he's agitated because these false testimonies are not working. He's hoping that Jesus will say something to incriminate himself. What do you say to all these things? Answer it. And it says that Jesus kept silent. He answered none of those things. Do you know why he didn't answer those false accusations? Because they were false. <laughs> Do you spend all of your time trying to fight false things? False accusations? Oh, there's no God. Where's this conversation going to go? Am I going to convince you today that there's a God? I'm going to try. I'm going to have an answer ready, as 1 Peter 3 says, right? But you have to understand, there are times when you go, man, this person's not looking for an answer. They're looking for an excuse. They're looking for an accusation. And see, Jesus says, I'm not answering this stuff because it's just simply not true. It's going to play out to show that I am not a criminal. <laughs> the evidence is clear that's the case. But yet this man here, as he's telling him, why don't you answer? Jesus was fulfilling prophecy and doing it this way. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He could have easily defended himself. He could have easily destroyed these people by calling down, I don't know, fire, lightning, or angels, or anything else. But he says, no, I'm going to go to the slaughter silently because I'm fulfilling this. He says nothing, but notice when he does speak. It's only after the high priest inquires of his messiahship and his deity. He says, are you the messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? And man, Jesus immediately opens his mouth. He says, oh, I'm going to answer that one. You see, if someone ever asks you, is Jesus the Messiah, is Jesus the Son of God, you better be in that battle, amen? You better be ready to give an answer from Scripture, from history, from everything, that, from your life that says, yes, that's true. I won't answer your ridiculous, insincere questions. But when you ask something that pertains to Jesus' identity, 
oh, you're going to get an earful. <laughs> I'm going to rejoice for who he is. And Jesus in this moment, don't let anyone tell you that Jesus never said he was the son of God. Never let anyone say that Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah. In this moment, he says, listen, I am. Big statement right there. We see that throughout Exodus deity, right? And he says, and you will see the son of man. That's verbiage from Daniel 7, 13 and 14 sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's saying, I am the Messiah of Scripture. I am the Son of God. I am the, the, the one from Psalm 110.1 where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Yes. He says, I am that one. I will answer that every time. And man, Caiaphas, the high priest, he tears his clothes. We're like, what is with these guys in their clothes in this section, right? What this means. <laughs> no, this is, I'm mad. This is, I am, this is blasphemy. I'm mourning and shocked that anyone would say such a thing. And this is the guy that's supposed to be like the unbiased judge in this. He's asking the question. He's tearing his clothes. He's like, what should we do to him? And it says that they all condemned him. The word for condemn there is katakrino. It means to judge worthy of punishment. We believe that he should be judged worthy of the punishment for blasphemy. And Leviticus 24, 16 says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. They had their charge. They said, Jesus with his mouth says that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. It's the Son of God thing that's the blasphemous part. He thinks that he's God the Son. We must kill him. <laughs> he believes that he is God. And man, the brutal treatment. They begin to beat him. They blindfold him. Have you ever heard about this? I remember someone teaching us one time. When you get blindfolded and someone goes to punch you, you can't, you can't like brace for the impact. Just the beatdown is harder than ever because they're coming from different directions and you're just getting thrown around and beaten. It says that they beat him and spit upon him and mocked him. Those terms in the original language, they're in this continual tense. Like they continued to spit on him. They continued to mock him and beat him. And they would say, prophesy, who hit you? They're mocking him as being, you're not a prophet. Look at you, you're pathetic. Man, what kind of stuff do we endure and we're just like, that's it, I'm going to yell at everybody, right? <laughs> I'm going to get mad, I'm so mad, I'm going to quit. I'm going to do, Jesus is blindfolded, beaten, spit upon, and he's the son of God. Isaiah 50 verse 6 said this would occur. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. It's interesting, someone said that in the Gospels, you'll never see a scene where they actually pluck his beard out, but based on Isaiah being the word of God, we can trust that that came true. Jesus read things like Isaiah and knew, I'm going to go fulfill that. And he did it out of love for you and I. Does that not just change the way I should respond to my Lord and Master? He's not my genie. He's my loving Lord. He's my Savior, He's my Messiah, He's the Son of God, and He's worthy of all of my adoration, all of my worship, and all of my praise. But I'll remind you, sometimes we will fall short. Look at this last section. We're going to finish it here, 66 through 72. It says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, it's about an hour later according to their accounts, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. 
Then Peter began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Man, <laughs> a sobering reminder. You better not be like, puffed up this morning. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 8.1 says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. <laughs> we have a tendency. Can I just tell you what we, okay, maybe I have a tendency, maybe you guys don't. I have a tendency, the more I study the Word of God, the more strong I think I am. That's not a true statement. Let me be clear. The more I study the Word, the more I realize how good God is, how strong He is, and my need to submit and trust in Him. Don't think that your study of the Word of God actually makes you physically stronger. You still have all your inadequacies and the capacity to do wicked things. <laughs> And I remind you that, not pointing a finger. I should unfold my fingers, right? So the reality is, <laughs> I'm that guy too. I have to beware of things like this. And here's Peter. He's out in the courtyard. And it's that during that nighttime trial. And Jesus is up in like probably an upper loft, according to, you know, Scripture. He's up here somewhere. Peter's down here. And what's Peter doing while Jesus is being beaten and tried? Warming himself by a fire. That just strikes me. I'll stay over here in my comforts. I said I was so strong. Jesus, you suffer for me, but I'm going to stay over here really comfortable. I'm going to hang out with people that serve the crew that are beating you right now. I'm going to stay over here and just take care of myself. While he's doing that, this servant girl, who I believe is the doorkeeper that's seen in John 18, 15 through 16, she had had an encounter with John. John went in. John went a little further than Peter, which is funny, right? Because Peter said, oh, I'm stronger than everyone. John has actually gone further than Peter to follow Jesus. Peter's out warming himself. And she says, hey, you're also like John. You're also with Jesus, huh? And what's he say? I neither know nor understand what you are saying. <laughs> That's worded in a way, it's been pointed out, I was reading John Walvoord, he studies all the Jewish history stuff. He says that was a quote of oath under law. If you were, really weren't a witness of something, you would come in and say this phrase, I do not know what you're talking about, I don't even understand what you're saying. He's distancing himself from Jesus really good here. And I think it's interesting. Peter, the guy who was ready to draw a sword and cut an ear off, is afraid of a servant girl, by the way. Big, strong Peter who said, oh, I'm so strong. Here comes this young girl. She's like, aren't you with Jesus? Like, no, no, I'm not with him, right? I think it's wild. <laughs> we all think we're so big and strong until we're put under the trial. And then the weakest, smallest thing just embarrasses us because we've trusted in ourselves. <laughs> 69, it says here, the same servant girl saw Peter again and said, hey, this is one of them. And what did he do again? He denied it. <laughs> Remember, the rooster's already crowed once and he denies it again. And it's actually written here, Arneomai, in the imperfect tense. He denied it continually. He was denying, denying, denying. No, I'm, I, I'm telling you, I, I don't know him. And see, then later, about an hour later, according to Luke twenty two fifty nine, everyone around with him says, we hear the way you're talking. Your accent is Galilean. All the guys that roll with Jesus mostly from Galilee. I think you might be one of them. And so what he does, it says he started cursing and swearing. Some people have said, oh yeah, profanity and stuff. That's not what's in here. The language says the curse and the swearing is that he was taking an oath upon himself before God to say, I do not know this man, Jesus. I'm sorry, that's way worse than cussing and profanity. <laughs> we try to make it profanity like, what? This is way worse. He says, if I'm wrong, strike me dead. I don't even know who this is. <laughs> I don't even know the man. He doesn't even use Jesus' name. I don't know the man. 
It's wild because at that moment, the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter recalled the words of Jesus. And you know what it says in Luke twenty-two sixty-one. One of, I, I don't know, one of the most startling statements in this whole section from Luke twenty-two sixty-one. It says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter from wherever he was in that trial. At whatever point this happened, Jesus was able to make eye contact with Peter and looked at him. Now, I don't know what that look looked like. I, in my wicked heart, is like, Jesus probably like, dude, right? But you know what Jesus probably doing? I got to think it was a look of love. Because <laughs> we see what comes later. We see that restoration, so do you think Jesus was shocked when Peter did this? He told him he'd do it. <laughs> He's just like, dude, I told you. Why did you do that? <laughs> you should have stayed awake. You should have prayed. Temptation was coming for you to deny me, and instead you fell into it because you slept the whole time. You were slumbering. Well, I'm over here suffering. You're slumbering. And she, look, I knew it. That's why I have to suffer for you, Peter. You're not strong enough to do the things that I'm doing, Jesus could say. And it's interesting. It says that, Jesus, that I'm sorry, Peter, he went and whipped, was weeping bitterly. This is interesting. This is where we finish here. Peter had remorse in this situation. He was sorrowful over what happened. And I'll tell you, it was godly Remorse. It was godly sorrow. Because as we go on and read the rest of the Gospels, we see what happens. Peter's remorse eventually led him to repent and return to Jesus. Remember breakfast on the beach in John 21? Who is it that says, that's Jesus. I'm going to run to him right now. I'm going to go and be with him. And in, in that section in 21, John 21, 15 through 18, Jesus restored Peter three times. One time for every denial. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, according to Psalm 103.12. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9 says. Peter said, or I'm sorry, David says in Psalm 51, he says, these are the things the Lord wants, a broken heart, contrite spirit, right? Man, that you would in humility come to Jesus and say, I have failed you so many times. The Lord says, I will forgive you those many times. If you have breath in your lungs today, you have an opportunity to be restored and reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We had two similar situations. We talked about it last week. This is how we close. Judas, he betrayed Jesus, right? And what Judas did, it did he had remorse because he didn't like the way it worked out but he never repented. He went and gave the money back. He said, this isn't, this isn't good the way it worked out. I don't like this. And you know what he did? He went and it led to death. He went and hanged himself. But Peter, Peter says, I failed the Lord three times. And then when he sees the Lord again, he returns to him. He runs to him and he says, Lord. And the Lord Jesus says, do you love me? So you know that I love you. He says, all right, feed my sheep. Three times he does this with him. And Peter's like, Lord, three times. What are you doing here? Remember, we talked about repeating things over and over. The Lord Jesus was making it clear. If you think I'm only going to restore you once, I will give you complete reconciliation, rec restoration of your sins against me if you just return to me. Do you love me? This morning I'll ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you understand that he went to the cross to die for you? It's the kindness, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance according to Romans 2.4. Amen? If you came in here thinking God is mad at you, let me tell you, you need to repent. Trust in Jesus. You'll find out the love of God through the Savior, Jesus Christ.
Would you guys stand with me and we'll pray.